0: You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
1: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child
2: Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. Typically, each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. Notice how is it typically at the start of that last sentence? That's because this episode is not that. Our guest this week is my colleague, Catherine Van Arendonk, Vulture staff writer, TV critic, stand-up critic, and my friend. In said hybrid role, Catherine determines Vulture's rankings of the best stand-up specials of the year. Towards the end of last year, we had Catherine on the show to walk us through her 2019 ranking. At Vulture, we also do best of lists for the year so far, right around the middle of the year. So that's what Catherine and I talk about this episode. Catherine doesn't rank the list until the end of the year, so we go in alphabetic order by first name, because that just sort of felt right. You know, a good one was created for many reasons, but maybe the simplest was to recommend comedy for people to watch. I like comedy a lot, it makes me happy when skies are grey, but seriously, at its most elemental, comedy releases pressure. I'm sure you, like literally everyone, could use some tension relief, uh, and I hope some of these specials help. So, let's welcome Catherine Van Arendonk. I am here with Catherine Van Arendonk, thank you for joining me.
3: I'm so excited to be here once again.
2: Yeah, I haven't seen you for literally ever, so it's nice to see your face.
3: (laughs) Yours too. (laughs) Um,
2: So we're going to go through your list of the best specials of the year so far. So we spoke in December, and that had been... You had still not been reviewing specials for a full year, Mm -mm. right? Yes. So I think probably at this point you have. Yeah. Has... Your approach to your sort of critical lens on stand-up evolved, has what you found interesting evolved? Has your value system evolved? or and, and if so, how?
3: Um, I think by the end of last year, I had written up enough stuff that I was particularly interested in um, weirdness. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm thinking particularly of um, Julio Torres' is My Shape. Like, you know, it's just like very strange yeah. iterations of the form. And even like Burbiglia's, the new one, as being this very um, unusual way of playing with what a, an hour long comedy special would be. Um, and I am still fascinated by weirdness, as I think is demonstrated by at least a couple things on this list. But I after watching and sort of writing about more of them have I think I can feel the pendulum swinging back in the other direction a little mm-hmm. bit and um, being sort of as interested or possibly a little bit more interested in this particular moment with like it's just an hour of comedy <laughs> yeah. that somebody is doing. And and there are some examples of that on here, too. I guess part of the other thing that I was thinking about just right now at this moment in history is that I was have been increasingly aware since March that there just aren't going to be examples of those mm-hmm. for a long time. And so the thing that used to feel like it was in Surfeit, which is a person standing in front of a large crowd and doing an hour of comedy, just a, like a regular you know set, um, is suddenly now there's there's not a lot of it and won't be a lot of it for a long time. Because I think the only way that it will survive right now is is weirdness, right? Is like yeah. messing with the form and doing all kinds of interesting things. Which is great. And I'm I'm I will continue to be really interested in sort of watch how all of that works but i am like weirdly nostalgic i was looking back at the list and i was watching you know clips of stuff again and i was like oh my god they're all in this theater together <laughs> Like, <it> was
4: <laughs>
2: yeah i mean yeah. i think even the, the people that i've talked to are thinking of like oh if i get back i'm just gonna be happy to do it again yeah. like just to do the basic thing that i probably have gotten tired of and the the basic idea of a person talking to you and telling their story or, or jokes or whatever had felt less special when there was 110 in a year Yeah. and there's a th- so many places you can see it whatever and now there's there's a finite amount that have been filmed i i only know of a couple more that have been filmed i'm sure there are certain people that will film some outdoor ones based on their outdoor tours um but Well, what is a good attempt at inventiveness and what is a failure at it and what's a noble failure at it and, like, what raises the level of actually being an interesting person and ultimately accepting um, that is subjective? And we could talk about this literally forever, but (laughs) based on how last time we spoke for 12 hours, (laughs) I want to move to it. So. We are going alphabetical of the first name of the comedian for no reason. Which other is how than...
3: all librarians and all systems of ordering have always done everything.
2: I just sort of looked at the names in different orders and it felt like, oh, I'd be interested in talking to these people in the order of first name <laughs> alphabetical order. <laughs> um, so first on your list, alphabetical order by first name is Dave Chappelle's 846, which was released on Netflix's YouTube channel. Uh, So why?
3: So this is a short performance that he did outside in Ohio, if you have not seen it. The 846 refers, of course, to the time that a police officer kneeled on George Floyd's neck and killed him. And it is mostly about that. It is mostly about Chappelle standing in front of a crowd and working through a lot of stuff, including his need to say something about what has been happening in this country forever and also particularly for the last couple months, Um, his... I don't want to say resentment, but, like, the strangeness of being a voice where you know that, like, Mm -hmm. people are expecting you or sort of hoping you'd say something about this kind of a thing. Um, And the, the unusual position of being a comedian and gathering this crowd of people in front of you at a time when gathering crowds is itself fraught. And not wanting to be funny because that's not what this is about and sort of balancing the what you need to be and what the crowd is expecting of you
1: and I'm watching uh, Don Lemon that hotbed of reality <laughs> he says where are all these celebrities why aren't you talking this nigga said everybody I was screaming at the TV I dare you to say me nigga I dare you. Has anyone ever listened to me do comedy? Have I not ever said anything about these things before? So now all of a sudden, this nigga expects me to step in front of the streets and talk over the work these people are doing as a celebrity, asking me. Do you want to see a celebrity right now? Do we give a fuck what Ja Rule thinks? Does it matter about celebrity? No. This is the streets talking for themselves. They don't need me right now.
3: It just feels like a document of now, of this year, yeah. that it, it would be weird to not to not include on like what was the best of any kind of stand-up performance this year. In spite of all that, I don't. Like, I I was unsure about whether it belonged on the list because it does not feel like its aim is to be comedy. Yeah. Um, and I think when it first came out, you know, we were talking a lot in the vulture comedy slack about, um, like, what to call it. Mm-hmm. And I kept coming back to this sense of, like, of like a sermon or actually there's this old word Jeremiah um, which is uh, the word for a sermon that is like particularly about um, being in or going to hell and the threat mm-hmm. of it, uh, which is a very old American word. And I liked the idea of the sort of American traditionalism of that particular form as being a way of thinking about that, this, this half hour in particular. Um, but, because he is who he is, and because we do not have another, li- like, there's no best Jeremiah's of the year list to put this on. Um, It belongs here, I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we can talk about this entire time, but this is a thing that I, personally, I think about all the time of, like, what counts and what doesn't count. And, um, and if you look up the dictionary definition of comedy, and it basically is... Some sort of work where the with the hope to get the result of laughter. Like laughing is in the definition of comedy. <laughs> and and I think that is in the definition most people hold of comedy, despite the fact that if we're being honest with ourselves, like not all comedy that we like demands us laughing constantly. Yeah, like does it mean when someone doesn't make you laugh for five minutes, that five minute part is not comedy? Well, like, what if you instead, had only that five minute part and you know so i came up with a term a couple years ago called post comedy um which is the idea of comedy that uses the forms of comedy be it sitcom or stand up but without the goal of making people laugh and people made fun of me and said it was (laughs) stupid and and some people thought i was advocating as this is what comedy should be which i wasn't but let alone Shrink and dave chappelle doing exactly it like he's doing nanette and i think nanette is a useful example and though nanette is more crafted nanette is comedy in so much as it's like built on a fundamental irony which Mm -hmm. is i'm quitting stand-up i'm going to tell you that via the form of stand-up comedy and this is built on a different irony which is I'm going to talk for 30 minutes about why you should not care about what I have to say about this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that is, you're not laughing at that. If you're laughing for 30 minutes during that, you are like seriously messed up. A sociopath. But it, yeah. It is triggering something in your brain that is the same thing that gets triggered when you do laugh in a way, but it's a different sort of thing. And he is masterfully playing with that. I mean, it, it it's very hard for stand up comedians to create paradox in a way that is not just like cheap like to actually have paradox and live with it and like not resolve it and when it's being more reactive to the half hour i was like he's like he said he shouldn't have to speak and then he speaks but like ultimately like he didn't give me an answer like i don't know like by celebrating it am i doing the right thing or the wrong thing is he should be thinking i'm celebrating and he's forcing you to sit in that and that is like, what a comedian does. Like, it, it still fulfilled what comedy does in terms of, like, I think it did relieve an amount of tension. Mm. It did give people the vocabulary to understand certain things that are happening. It pointed people in directions, which I think is, like, ultimately what satire can do. It just, like, didn't do the thing that we define comedy by...
3: Which is be funny.
2: Which is be funny, but that's just because <laughs> no one has said we don't have to do that. And, like, I do think... To go back to the post-comedy thing when people are making fun of it, like, as time goes on, as more comedy is happening over the internet and you can't really hear laughter, like, yeah, well, why is, we can't use laughter as this metric anymore. Like, yeah. this is going to be, like, a defining moment. Like, this and Annette will be in conversation for forever about where comedy was at this time as we, like, hopefully look forward. I say that as a person who, like, actively will put those things in conversation, but but
3: they'll be in conversation forever
2: i mean it's it's going to be the special we remember i mean like there's a few specials on this list that are are going to be the things that we'll remember this time as like in 30 years in so much as there's an earth and people like you wrote about comedy in in the year 2020 you remember dave chappelle's 846 foreshadowing like mark maron's end times fun or whatever so it's like to not be on this list would be like, well, then what, is, what yeah. are we rewarding? Yeah. So now for something completely different. <laughs> um, Fortune Femesters, Sweet and Salty, which was released on Netflix. What did, yes. Why did you want to include that one?
3: Um, I think watching it, I was like, I have seen some version of this kind of thing many times. And when I say this kind of thing, what I mean is like, Hello, this is me. Here's yes. who I am. Here's how I got this way.
2: Here's the beginning, middle, and end of me to this point.
3: Uh, yeah, exactly. It And uh, I'm. it's going to have trauma in it, and it's going to be funny. And both of those things are going to go sort of back and forth, and you're going to see that push and pull as resulting in the person who stands in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are better and worse examples of the form. And I went into this one, like the beginning of it, as soon as I could sort of feel what it was, it was like, okay, I got it. I got it. I got what this is. And having met that, like, yep, a check mark, understand. I still was impressed throughout the, throughout the hour of how just delightful it was. Mm-hmm. um, And how really efficiently and, um, effectively she manages to draw that that portrait of particularly her sort of pre-adolescent self um, of the reflections back and forth between you know the things that she was feeling then and and who she is now um she's uh, very um adept at drawing it like Pointing out these images of who she was as a child and making clear that they are ridiculous and being clearly and legitimately proud mm-hmm. of that same child. And so this experience, which could often feel really traumatic and in a way that you can see sort of the more traumatic side of in a different special on this list Um Instead here feels like this like just amazingly celebratory experience yeah. of that arc, you, you, uh, which I just had so much fu- fun watching.
2: You mentioned the swim team part of it.
3: So my
5: brother was this really amazing swimmer and uh, my parents hoped that it ran in the family <laughs> They wanted me to join the swim team in my hometown. And so I was like, I don't know. They said, just go check out a meet, see what you think. So I went to a swim meet and I noticed that all of the swimmers were eating Fun Dip before their races. You guys remember Fun Dip? (laughs) It's just a packet of sugar and a piece of chalk. So they would eat this fun dip before they race because they thought that the sugar would help spike their energy up and help them swim faster. I'm like, I'm not here to question the science. <laughs> but I would like to join the swim team. <laughs> so I joined the team for the fun dip. And at my very first swim meet, they hand me my team uniform. I pull it out. It's this bright green one-piece Speedo. And I'm like, ah, uh, I, don't, I don't wear it. I don't wear Speedos or one piece or two piece. I'm good. They're like, well, you gotta wear it. What do you normally wear? I said, normally a triple XL t-shirt with the sleeves cut off and a pair of sweatpants. I'm still swimming that to this day. I call it my lesbian swimsuit.
2: I mean, the the image that I, I remember of it, partly because it is an image and because it's so succinctly captures so much of sort of her comedic point of view, which is sort of they're taking a team photo and she's sort of in this one piece and she sort of never is one in one piece. And then it's and it's sort of like smile up top. And then like you scroll scroll down, it's like full bush or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And and like the name of the special is sweet and salty. And it refers to a specific joke of like the types of food she likes or whatever. But mm-hmm. like. It is, like, clearly her comedic point of view. Like, it is rare where com- where comedians be like, this is sort of the vibe of every single joke. Yeah, it's of every like. single <laughs> joke. And when I watched it, I also clocked. It's like, oh, it's a welcome to me special. But usually mm-hmm. those specials are done by younger comedians and less experienced comedians. So, like, they are using their narrative as a way of overcoming for the fact that, like, they don't have a comedic voice that is fully articulated yet. But you're you because you're following their story, you're just like, well, I'm meeting them. I like hanging out with them. But because clearly she had been doing stand-up for so long, it felt like at Greatest Hits, that was also a debut album where you're like, Yeah, I think that's right. I was like, every, every one of these stories freaking bangs. Yeah. And and that is like a rare thing. And it feels so nice to meet a person and them be so good at th- being themselves. Yeah. Like it just I was about to say delicious because of the words, but now that yeah, it's not yeah, like the yeah, yeah. right word. But it's just like it is like such an enjoyable thing to consume mm-hmm. and live it, like live in the world and be part of, her, part of her team. And I think the thing that it captures is like I was rewatching part of it and it said like TVMA and I'm like, what? I mean, in my head, I there's know. no cursing in this special, but like <laughs> it's just sort of a person who you sort of, like, are getting the full picture of this person, which is, like, who she is with her family and who she is as sort of an adult, and, like, yeah, she probably, like, curses more if she's just with her friends and maybe, she, whatever, but, like, you know, comedy ultimately is, like, a exciting art form because you get to, like, really meet different people with different points of view and, like, experience these sort of extreme empathy of just, like, meeting a person and, like, having their art be expressed directly to you, and it's, like, When it works as well as this does you're like well this is why <laughs> this is why i decided to watch comedy
3: yeah my the image that i have from that swim meet story is, is a different one it's so funny because it's a different image and yet the point of it is exactly the same as the yeah. smiling and the bush and it is when she realizes that she actually has to swim in the swim meet and but she can't swim mm-hmm. but she realizes that she can touch the bottom so she literally just walks across the pool but like makes swimming motions on mm-hmm. top and it's exactly the same as like a top versus bottom, you know, half and half. But I love that it also adds, and it has. It's exactly the same as the swimsuit as well, which is that um, she's pulling it off, but she cannot pull it off.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: She is simultaneously completely incompetent and perfectly doing the thing that she has been asked to do, yeah. and the the just unbelievably beautiful exact parallels of those images and how well that same kind of thing shows up again and again and again and again in that hour. It's just very well done. yeah. yeah.
2: next on the list is Hannah Gatsby's Douglas also on Netflix
3: mm-hmm.
2: what a, what a, what do you, you like you like Douglas? <laughs> Why'd you like Douglas?
3: I did like Douglas. I it was sillier than I than I was worried it was going to be. You, know? oh, you
2: thought she was going to be, like, time to find a new traumatic thing and just, like, carve at it for an hour? I th-
3: I guess so. Or I was worried that it was going to be um, just I- – I spent so much of Nanette, like, so in my head, mm-hmm. you know? And the part of this that is also extremely her in her head is the first chunk of it where yeah. she is just – Giving you this extremely long discourse about like what is about to happen in my review of this, it's very, very, very much like an 18th century novel. Like it mm-hmm. is exactly like the way Lawrence Stern writes *Tristram Shandy, where like as he is writing it, he draws a little map of like how the rest of the novel is going to go. And then you watch as the little maps change throughout the novel. Mm-hmm. And I am super into that shit. Like I love a ridiculous meta nonsense But the experience of watching it in Nanette felt like I was being asked to not enjoy Mm. that meta split, which is great. That was exactly what Nanette was supposed to do and was trying to do. But when Douglas came out this year, I was not particularly in the mood to be scolded for the thing that I was watching. Mm. Um, And so I was... I was really pleasantly surprised that it did not feel like she was herself, like she was angry at herself for the fact that she was doing this thing at all. So silly by the yeah. end.
2: I mean, I think that what this captured, like if you had not consumed any interviews with Hannah Gatsby or in my case interviewed her, if you just watched these two things and this is all you knew about her. I think it makes Nanette seem better. Yeah. Like, if you only knew this person did this thing, you didn't know she had 10 years of stand-up before it, and you're like, why is she quitting? I didn't know she exists, you know? But I think what both captures and what is so strikingly different than other comedians we at least really see in the States, but even as a person who consumes some sort of, um, like, the Edinburgh or Melbourne School uh, or, of like doing more show shows is like hannah understands using form for a reason Mm -hmm. she understands the story she's telling and she understands i need to do a form that like makes sense for that story Mm -hmm. and and that is not at a level a lot of people are working on i mean it's like It's just sort of not even like some people understand it on like a joke level, but really not many people are like sitting down like, what's the show? What's the story I'm trying to get at? Which is like I want to she wants to tell a story of her autism, but not being like, here's an hour about autism. She wants to have you experience her autism before she talks about it. And then, you know, as she described it, it's like a love. It's like a romantic comedy where at the end you are falling in love with her, which Mm -hmm. is like such a different contract with the audience than the first show, where she's like, I'm leaving you, bye forever. And then she does that, and the audience embraces her in a way that is unbelievable. She told, like, a small group of people, I'm never talking to you guys ever again. And then, like, the entire world was like, sorry, we love you too much. (laughs) And so this is her processing it, but you, it is not form or, like, um this for the sake of it it's like clearly like oh there's a value to doing a call forward because it like c- captures how the story needs to be told in a way that will have you leave it best understanding how it worked there are parts that i don't think work as well like there's there's multiple parts where she does powerpoints about art mm-hmm. which is partly done because that's kind of, like, a big part of her comedy. Like, when Nanette came out, I think a lot of people were like, oh, and it's so smart, she talks about art. And it's like, yeah, I guess it is smart. But, like, to Australians, it's like, yeah, she's the art comedian. Like, that's a big part of her comedy. So, like, what I also sort of liked about it, it's almost, like, definitively, like, I'm going to do something worse. Like, if I try to do something as good or as great, Mm. it's impossible because she's very divorced from the idea that she made nanette like she made something and it was called nanette it was that hour of of work but like nanette as a living entity that is separate from her has she has no relationship to so it's almost like she's like i can't try to do that because i can't control the world meeting me so like i'm gonna tell you what this is so you can't so like So all of your expectations are gone. Like now you have these expectations and to actually then just do that. Yeah. No twist on that. And it's also sort of really hard to tell jokes where you sort of know what the surprise is. I thought like it's exciting to see that work. But like the first 10 minutes where she's just calling it forward is like that is like the most exciting 10 minutes for a person like me all year. You're like, this is she really is going to do this.
5: But other than trauma, you know, I have no way of telling what people are expecting from this show. But what I've decided is possible is for me to just tell you. And that's what's going to happen. That's how I'm going to meet your expectations. By adjusting them for you now. (laughs) So they are exactly what you're going to get. And then I'll meet them and you go, she's very good. And yes, I am, but I cheat. (laughs) So that's what's going to happen before the show even begins, right? I'm going to give you a very detailed blow-by-blow description of exactly how the show is going to unfold. Now, this setting of expectations does go on a bit. I've had to cut the actual show in order to fit it in. But I believe it's worth it, you know? Like, to be able to meet your expectations, it's my job. And let's face it, this is my difficult second album that is also my tenth and some people's first. You know, this is a lot
3: of pressure. (laughs) So let's set your expectations. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it is in its own way a really good and... And telling callback to Nanette, where she has this famous line about how the, the problem with comedy is that the end is literally a punchline, right? Mm-hmm. And in this thing, she just she she says at the beginning, like, I'm not gonna punch you. Here's what's gonna happen. And so yeah. it's sort of fascinating to see that actually work.
2: It is nice that she became one of the most famous comedians in the world. Like, not overnight, but like ostensibly overnight. And the expectation put on that. When there's so few famous comedians in the world, like most famous comedians in the world get there by doing comedy for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And it's like the weight we give them is from a culmination of experiences, right? Like Dave Chappelle is one of those people. And he did that because like he was a stand up comedian. He had this incredibly defining sketch show. He then left and that was defining. Then he came back. And, that, and all of that brings a weight. Yeah. And Hannah had to deal with that all at once without people having any understanding of the other 30 years of her life. So to succeed at this level, which again, it's not a perfect thing, but she wasn't trying to. So in the way it was like exactly what she was trying to do is just like, to me, like a happy ending. Like I was still nervous that like Nanette was a burden for this person who so clearly like didn't know how to process these things. And then it's like, oh, what what a nice thing that this happened. Like I'm happy comedy has this little arc of two specials
3: mm-hmm. yeah i think that makes sense
2: moving on leslie jones time machine netflix yes,
3: netflix you know i reviewed this one a while ago in what now feels like a thousand years ago yeah and so thinking back on it the joke that sticks in my head is is um, probably the the stupidest one in many respects of the hour, and yet it is the image that is just stuck in my brain, which is that she tells... This story about this very long, convoluted story about how she and her friend are going out and they're going to this club and she realizes Prince is there and she's going to somehow get Prince's attention. And she does this ridiculous dance, yeah. like fully choreographed dance.
1: So I was on the wall I was thinking, how am I I'll hold these hoes? <laughs> <sighs> then they played my favorite song. Prince get off i was like oh okay all right so i know how I'm, i'll hold these hoes kick my shoes off i was like
3: and she's fantastic at doing this dance right then one imagines amazing now on stage amazing yeah But the theme that she plays with throughout the whole hour, which is, you know, the title of it is Time Machine, and a lot of the jokes work on this sort of retrospective and also forward-looking, who will I be in the future? Who was I in the past? And on the one hand, that joke is dumb because it's just a great, stupid-looking dance, right? Mm -hmm. But the reason that it works so well is that she... While doing that dance and in the context of how she is telling that joke, where she is perpetually reflecting her younger self back against who she now sees what mm-hmm. that is like. And we as the audience are sort of living both responses, both her in that original like experience and her telling the story now. And as she is performing it, somehow, physically, she is able to be both things. Like she is both that young person doing that dance and she's her on that stage now wearing a knee brace and like her face is so she is so great at balancing our ability to laugh at both versions of it and it's like a very different kind of laughter but both of them feel just legitimate and and fun and like exhausting and so Although she plays with that same idea again and again in the special and it does that same kind of reflection over and over, the one that I'm stuck with is still just the watching her face do I am this old standing on this stage right now while her body is doing I am that young in that club at that moment.
2: I mean it to me, like I I, I watch it and and it's a lot like the Jerry Seinfeld thing of this is a person with a mastery over their instrument, which is themselves. And, and I think when people talk about craft in stand-up, they're like, oh, how short is your joke that you get to the point where you get to the punchline as quickly as possible? And and it completely ignores that comedy is a visual medium. Like, stand-up yeah. comedy is a visual medium. You're going to see a person perform live. And... I watch Leslie, she knows exactly where her voice is. And it's, there's a broad range, like literally like volume wise. She gets much louder than people, but she also can be quiet. Like she is. And so that dance is like, in so much as comedy is a a craft of like, you write something and then you play with an audience and through the, through an audience, you're tinkering, whatever. That is still going to be happening with this dance. And like, (laughs) you watch this dance and- it's just sort of, it is a funny dance. Like it is like ultimately so much comedy is like, does a person look funny? Does a person sound funny? And like, she understands that, but like why this worked is, you know, a lot of the jokes are sort of built around act outs. Like, obviously like it, there's a momentum that builds to it, but you know, she, she worked to have a framing device that was sort of clean that, you know, like getting older is ultimately what almost all comedy is about, or a lot of comedians are about that. And, Mm. um, but it was interesting because, like, she's a comedian who has specials before, and there, some of them are available on Netflix. But she, she was aware that this was at a certain and she's she was going to use it to sort of jump way back and way forward. And she's going to look at a, and post to like, oh, it turned 50. I'm going to tell you the difference of the last four years. So she used this moment to sort of add weight to all these stories and allow these moments to sort of you feel when she dances the entirety of her existence. <laughs> But the thing that is sort of, I will always remember the first time I ever saw her live, which was when she was still a writer in SNL, and so she moved to New York. And I remember she talked about, but I was just like, she's like Sam Kinnison. She's like a force of nature. When she is performing, you can't not look at her. And it's really hard to film that and it feel the same. And it just won't. Like, I imagine if you saw her live, the energy of that would be greater. But like, there are still points, like earlier in that Prince joke, she um, talks about how Prince is wearing chaps. So he has yeah. like his man asses out and he's just, she's just sort of yelling the man, ass, man ass, ass or whatever. Yeah. And like, <laughs> yes, like hypothetically it's better writing. If you sort of write uh, some joke of that play on man ass or whatever, instead of just saying it over and over again. But like, th- she knows her voice. She knows like ultimately like the absurdity is already there. You don't need to like come up with a different phrasing to be cute, like, ultimately scream at it until the audience actually realizes this is a real absurd thing that happened, mm-hmm. you know? And, like, and she's so good at yelling, and it's, she's so, you know, Um, I think a lot about, like, personas or whatever, and certain people, I wrote this about Mark Maron, who, like, struggled to sort of make it, and then he, like, turned 45, and everyone's like, it made sense. Like, he needed to be old to be that type of guy. <laughs> yeah. And that, like, Leslie is perfectly cast to play the part of Leslie Jones in that moment, Mm. and there really is no one like it, and that's the same thing, which is, like, both no one like it as a human being, but also, like, literally, she's a comedic entity onto herself that is a certain sort of outgrowth of other comedic trends starting from the 80s when she started, but, like, like, it's distinct, and, like, that is, like, what, in so much as, like, we're judging art, it's, like, do they have, like, are they self-inspired and are they able to articulate their point of view successfully? And I think like yeah. that is exactly what that special is.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Mark Marin's End Times Fun, Netflix.
3: Yeah. This is one of my favorites on the list.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: Um and the the joke that really sums up what the special is is the thing that he gets to at the end.
6: Well, I, I think you know what happens. I mean, <laughs> Mike Pence fills his mouth with Jesus cock. I mean, there's no way he's not going to do that. <clears throat> and, and he can't believe how amazing this day is. Like, Judgment Day worked out far better than anything he even assumed could possibly happen. So he's just blowing Jesus. <clears throat> and then something weird happens. Like, Iron Man, sort of like, I, you know, I'm not even sure I'm supposed to be here anymore. And then something weird happens. The the Jesus dick keeps getting bigger and bigger, like to the point where it locks up Mike's jaws. He's like, ah! And it's starting to hurt him, and it just blows through the back of his head, and it kills him. And Iron Man's like, what the fuck is happening? So he just launches into the air, and all of a sudden, Jesus' dick is huge. It's shooting fire, and he's swinging Pence around until his body falls off. So now he's just got this Pence head cock ring, you know, and he's just spraying fire everywhere. And Iron Man's like, oh, he's what jesus what's going on and then the robe comes off and it's
3: safe. he spends a lot of time building up to this idea and playing with this idea that like the world is ending which i don't think anyone really needed extra convincing of but he frames in a in a particularly pointed way and he also is able to do like topical political comedy without it feeling like, wow, that Trump guy, he just really sucks. Mm. And at the end, what he gets to is this thing that is this summary of everything that he has been working on, except it is put in this new form which is like a last book of the bible and the revelations is coming but it has threaded in pop culture and christianity and judaism and like current political climate and everything and i was so struck by how silly but also like weirdly old it felt the mm. the combination of um his deep deep unbelievable frustration as being expressed in this completely fantastical way and the way that that story like escalates and then finds just these little perfect punch jokes throughout i wanted to watch it again i haven't been able to watch it again but in part because i like I just, I really love the image of it in my head and I don't, I almost don't want to go back to it. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, it's, you just don't see people taking big swings like that it's anymore. It's the
3: biggest, it's a huge
2: swing. Because it, it also has a lot of, you know, the word offensive is like thrown around a lot these days by a lot of people in comedy and outside of comedy. And we've somehow defined offensive. It very narrowly to mean like you talk about like certain groups of people in a way that is just is offensive you know it's offensive and usually when people are doing it they are not trying to offend people but mm-hmm. they are trying to like it's so it's almost worse like they are they know no one's actually going to be offended because no one expects them to not say this and then they say it and then certain people are like yeah you said this offensive thing and then the other group of people is like we are sort of like offended that you would waste your power or your standing in society to do this. Mm-hmm. What you specifically said is like not causing people to feel hurt and not risky. Like there's no vulnerability of saying some joke about some marginalized group. It's not vulnerable. It's not interesting art. Yeah. And this end thing that Maren does, like there's some parts that I guess like are edgy in those regards but there are parts that are off-putting like are actually might offend your sensibilities yeah on purpose like yeah. you know i talked to him ab- about it but like i think that is actually like a incredibly lost art of like <laughs> like having an audience that ex- expects certain things and having them listen to things that are uncomfortable to be uncomfortable yeah so that they actually take in what he's saying more effectively. What do you think is
3: the most uncomfortable part of that joke? I, can't, this, I can't
2: remember, like, I feel like there's, like, Republicans that are, like, having sex with each other or something. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, like, like vaguely non-consensual consensual sex between, like, hypothetically straight Republican politicians, I think was, like, yeah. a part of it. Again, yeah. like, I haven't rewatched it in a while, but I have this painting of it. But the thing that I leave it with, is the special doesn't end, and you go, well, everything's okay, right? (laughs)
3: Yeah, right, (laughs) yeah, yeah.
2: And I think that's a thing that comedy can do. Well, he put a a joke at the end of this, and now I feel like I've done it. Like, I've experienced these feelings of pain, and now I have the catharsis, and I sort of move on. And with this, you sort of sit in it and be like, right now is not normal, and it's bad. And he does not do the easy joke, which is like, Trump is not good at being president which is like, which I, most comedians don't do in his, at this point because it's so obvious. But as a result, most comedians are sort of just avoiding it. Instead, he's like going at the fact that like there's nothing to hold on to anymore. Yeah. Like there's nothing steady. There's no consistency. And so, in, and he captures that. Being like here is the kitchen sink of dark, gross imagery. And it was the type of comedian he used to be when he actively disliked the audience and he was sort of doing it as self-sabotage so it it is so exciting it's just sort of following his career as in the last few years and especially the last special he's like i'm going to work hard i'm gonna like be a good comedian and so he his last special i think is a sort of really 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 good special and then this one he's like let's just push it like yeah. there's gonna be parts that are not perfect but i'm going to leave the audience feeling a little bit uncomfortable and like no one's doing that anymore so it's like exciting. He used his status to provoke,
4: yeah.
3: The thing I remember about sort of the uncomfortableness is that earlier in the in the set, he sets up this thing about Marvel as being like a religion, yeah, right. Yeah. And that first time I was like, yeah, okay," but I couldn't I hadn't really thought to the to the level of like and a lot of people watching this special will feel this way about those movies Mm -hmm. and will not particularly enjoy having it pointed out to them that they are. And then when he then resurrects those characters as the little literal gods in that in that revelatory sequence, the payoff of that felt really effective. And again, like it did not at all. Undermine or let off the hook that sense of just deep discomfort that he was pointing to.
2: You know, as as we're saying this special that when people look back on twenty twenty, they'll remember. And 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 as I was saying, Mark Marin's this and the Dave Chappelle one at least will be two. I mean, like this was released right as the pandemic was ramping up, but before quarantine. Literally, like I interviewed him the last time I was in the office, and like I have not been back, and that was in March. And it captures uncertainty. Without having yeah. to talk about the pandemic. And it makes you feel better, but it sort of makes you feel worse. Yeah, um, And that's the thing that you, you can't control. But, like, when you make lists, you have to acknowledge, like, well, this is the year this thing comes out. Yeah. We are not – you are not a magical objective being. Art's not released in vacuums, and you no. look at it in a vacuum.
3: It's not produced that way either.
2: Oh, yeah. and the other thing that I, I should I want to note is that like it is very hard for the directing in specials to be interesting. Uh yes. Um, because you don't want it to over. Like sometimes directing overshadows the performance if it's like a really directed special. Or most of the times, it's just sort of like small decisions of like the angles are shooting people and and it's subtle and it's you know it's nice and there's certain people that are better than other this was a special that was, so it was directed by mark's girlfriend at the time lynn shelton who in the weeks after passed away unrelated to coronavirus She sort of unexpectedly passed away but it is a beautifully shot special but it also is a very subtly uh directed special in that mark seems like he's being watched which is interesting because like obviously it's stand-up and you are being watched but how the camera moves feels like an entity and there are parts where he's sort of shot through the like wood slats and it looks like a like a CIA agent or whatever and like the special is different without that the visuals and you don't see it often but like it is the most successful attempt at shooting a special to create a tone that I could remember. Mm. Yeah. I wanted to remember that because I feel like the fact that people direct it doesn't come up and it's nice to think about the whole entity. I mean Leslie Jones specials directed by the Game of Thrones guys. I think yeah, they did fine. They, I don't know.
3: They did fine. There was an eyelash thing that bothered me with the direction <laughs> of that of that special. No, I was thinking of the Little Rel special from last year yeah, sort of, of tone and that yeah. Yeah. We're
2: we'll right back with more Catherine Van Arendong.
4: <laughs>
0: Built to be accessible, empowering, and community-building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
2: And we're back with the best specials of the year so far with Katherine Van Arendong. So next is going first name alphabetical order. <laughs> I'm double checking if I got that right. I was like, C is before I. Uh, next is Maria Bamford's Weakness is the Brand, which I believe you can watch on Amazon Prime, but it's also yes. available on Video On Demand.
3: Yes, yes. This is one that I uh, just really, I mean, she's so great. Um, but the thing that I found particularly interesting in this special is, is her transparency about her own struggle with being a good person and the way that she balances that with being a comedian who sort of steals people's stories and then mm-hmm. uses them for herself and makes money off of them. And one of the things that is so immediately obvious about the way her brain works and the way her comedy works is that she is just almost painfully empathetic like to the point where you can feel that it regularly interferes with her life Mm -hmm. because she is just over uh, um, empathizing with and relating to people around her um and It is, and she throughout the special sort of does that she has um a joke about a homeless person (laughs) she has a joke about therapy where she's like sharing things with her you know and and the the difficulty of trying to draw these portraits of people and how strongly she feels toward them and her own need to have attention on her and like turn it all into material and stuff and the joke that for me um really stuck with me about this is the one that also then threads that through the economics of it, which is this joke that she has about um, being asked to be an honorary speaker at a graduation and it is uh, (laughs) she tells classic, like very funny thing about how they don't want to pay her anything and how frustrating that is. (laughs)
1: Let's remember that their initial parry was zilch. (laughs) I counter thrusted
5: with 20 grand. (laughs) Uh, I received the following
3: email in response Oh, you dirty little bird.
1: You and your filthy feathered fat pants used to be a nice girl from Duluth, Minnesota, but now you're from L.A. with your eyes made of lead and steel.
6: We're a non-profit.
3: She does a great impression of her accountant who and then like has this um, Mm. argument with sort of herself and the accountant and the idea that you... um, Instead, suggest that you're going to, like, you need tons and tons of money for this thing. And the joke, like, flips over on itself, like, seven times. She's going to yeah. do it. No, she's not going to do it. Yes, she is going to do it, but she's going to use it for this per- specific thing. She's going to get paid for it, but then she's going to pay for these other people. But she's still got, like, it just sort of continually wheels through all of these things that she's that she's thinking about. But she doesn't let herself off the hook at the end from the yeah. fact that she is now getting paid to do this special where she is using this joke about getting paid. And so there is this, and she's aware, like she knows all of that and presents all of it. And it is this really beautiful and funny and fascinating and self-deprecating and effective way of like talking through her own need to have attention and her desire for like public validation of goodness that and then she's able to turn that idea into something pretty big. And like you come out of the special thinking about a lot, this public validation of mm-hmm. goodness. Um But in that joke in particular, I was I just admired so much the way she's able to navigate all of the twists that she does throughout it.
2: It's funny when she was on my podcast the first time she talked about the speech as the piece like the joke she wanted to talk about. Like, yeah, I talked her mid her working on it as a thing that she would do in her set. And and it's clear that she's like, it, it's almost like it was like a, for tax reasons, like if you like are using <laughs> this. And I think Maria Bamford is like the greatest comedian alive. I, I think I say that publicly enough that I that I can say that. But like, in terms of what a comedian can do, a stand-up comedian can do, she does it at the highest level um, consistently and also pushes different boundaries in terms of form while also sort of like she she does she has funny she does funny voices she can do different characters in really Mm -hmm. good ways she can her physicality is really specific she writes very specifically worded jokes in a very successful way but then she gets at the deeper meaning over and over again and tirelessly so i mean like it you know for years she was the only person talking about mental illness on stage and like yeah. really and like when people weren't comfortable when people telling her she shouldn't do it this was years this was like twenty years ago and like everyone thought she was ahead of her time but no one really th- that, but it didn't really matter like you're like oh she's ahead of her time and they sort of moved on and then like you see how commonplace it is for people to talk about it. and she was doing it fifteen years ago and a thing happened and I talked to her about it which was. She became sort of seen as a mental illness comedian a bit, but that wasn't her truth anymore. Like for the most part, things had leveled out. But she still wanted to talk about the things that people don't talk about. So it was yeah. money. and it was like why we do good things. Like she she knows that that is her role. It is to like reveal the truths of society, but not in a way that like glorifies her. And that's always the thing that I go back to, which is why I think she's so great. and def- defines greatness differently than i think was being defined when she sort of was coming up so i, I think about a lot which is sort of like for a while louis ck was seen as the greatest comedian alive this was just sort of like what people said and because people said it we all agreed like yeah. it's just easier if we all agree someone's the greatest then we'll just build a value system around this person it was louis ck and everyone's like he's so honest and he's the king of truth or whatever and you know after the things come out it reveals like well he's not telling us the whole truth but also it shows the sort of transactional relationship to truth he had which is i'm going to confess something and it's going to make me feel better Hmm. and you maybe will learn something about yourself along the way but i don't really care i'm doing it for myself and as and with maria which you mentioned which is she wants the audience to leave better than they came which is not it's not that art has to be that way necessarily it's just that she's defining that as like what her goal is is like our, part of the
3: value of it yeah and
2: that is a value system and like why is it like why is that value system not as appreciated the, the value system that is more self-centered and i think that is the thing that is interesting to investigate but like i see maria and this is interesting to get back to your earlier point which is like this is her most straightforward stand-up special ever i'm trying to think if she's ever done a special like this which is just her in an audience she looks to the camera or whatever which is different but for the most part yeah she did specials just for her parents she did specials by herself she did her her last special was like for one person then her dog and then it, and then but then it was 10 people then it was 100 people and it went back and forth and she's always thinking about audience and like being looked at and stuff but it was nice to, as right now to be able to look back and be like oh it's just like nice to watch this person yeah. who's great at it do stand-up
3: yeah 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 um I think there is something, you know, also inevitably gendered about the way that we value truth in some comedians and do not seem to consider yeah. the like importance of truth in others. Um and this is something I think we see actually also in a lot of a lot of different mediums, which is like truth that is designed to make us better people is often treated as like stupid didactic truth mm-hmm. rather than like the truth of, you know, these are my flaws, like like love me anyhow is a, a particularly male form <laughs> of like valued truth. Um, and so I, it is hard for me to think about her and who she is without also seeing, like, a history of reception that is yeah. extremely gendered. Yeah.
2: Which is why it's, like, important, not important. It's good to be, like, you know, after the Louis thing, I I, I I wrote a piece that was sort of about this. But ultimately, at the end of it, I was like, well, what would, what would it mean if we said... Maria Bamford's the great the best comedian alive or the greatest comedian alive. It doesn't matter. These this is my subjective opinion. It doesn't, it's like ultimately a thought experiment. But like, what if we decided to like reorient our value system around this person who's mm-hmm. clearly very good? So like yeah. and I think it's like every time I see her, I'm like, you are worthy of me using you as the example.
4: Yeah.
3: Yeah. 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 She's the best. She is.
2: All right. So Moving on, first name, alphabetical order, Patton Oswalt's I Love Everything on Netflix.
3: Yes. Um, This, he has this thing that he does uh, in most of the stories that he tells, which is that he falls down a little bit of a black hole about Mm -hmm. imagining somebody in the story. Um, It is not unlike a structure that we talked about a couple times already, but it is this thing where, like, you start out, it seems fairly innocuous, and then his imagination just circles deeper and deeper into this totally unsurprised, like totally surprising, totally unsettling place. It happens throughout the thing. Um, there's one where he's imagining the like secret lives of the contractors in who are like doing work on his house.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and you can just feel that it is essentially compulsive for him. Yeah. Like he cannot see people without sort of Constructing this other life for them. And the pinnacle of this is the joke that he gets to at the end um, where he takes his daughter to Denny's and first explains Denny's in a way that I had never thought of before, but immediately recognized as true, which is if you are in a Denny's, there's a decent chance that you're there for a terrible reason.
6: Denny's is where you end up. after a series of bad decisions and catastrophic twists of fate. That's why Denny's is there. And the whole operating procedure of Denny's fits that event. You walk into Denny's, hostess meets you, no words are exchanged. She takes you to your booth Leaves you a glass of ice water because this could be day three.
3: <laughs> and the entire purpose of Denny's is to just like get you through this liminal moment in your life where you're either going to curve back towards society or down into the de- Anyway, so he creates the space of this restaurant, first of all, defamiliarizing it in a way that I found both immediately easy to understand and extremely persuasive. And then does that thing that he's been doing again and again throughout the special where he takes some person who seems on the surface to be unremarkable and turns it into this sort of dark underlife and deploys that same strategy for these cartoon characters on the denny's menu Mm -hmm. um, which are anthropomorphic breakfast items that he creates this extremely seedy life for one of them is a prostitute one is her son and watching the joke are both struck by how just effective like he's so so good at Very quickly turning them into characters that you immediately understand that you can picture them in your mind like they they are just so alive, those stupid cartoon character breakfast food prostitutes. But also you are still there with him in the restaurant with his daughter sitting there in this booth just waiting to be served your probably underwhelming pancakes. And it is both of those scenes happening at the same time, the inside of his head, the outside, and then the stage where he's telling it, that he is able to sort of hold all of them together in a way that I find just to be a really masterful piece of writing.
2: Yeah. I mean, it is the level of goodness of his ability to write like that. I mean, is it's it's why he's seen <laughs> to be so good. Like you just like over and over again he's able to do it. And it just sort of Yeah. You know, I sometimes think of comedy as like you're taking a vacation in people's minds and different comedians, especially internal comedians, are some are better at sort of like actually making their internal life interesting and feel real, like not just yeah. like I did this exercise of trying to pretend what these people are like. And, and what I loved about this special is, and like this joke captures it, but all the jokes capture it, which is. This is a special about like love and loving things and loving life. The overall tone is positive intentionally. It is this last special is sad for obvious reasons. His wife Mm -hmm. unexpectedly passed away and it's about that. It's about living in that. And this special is about finding love again and also finding love for life again. But what is interesting is sort of that love is expressed sort of like at the beginning, a nice sort of thing happens and that love is often expressed in sort of how... His brain is still going and it, it sort of it does two things. One, it goes sort of like how optimism is a thing you have to work hard on. It is not natural, but it's something that takes work and it captures that. But also it's like what he does and his craft and his love of language and words does is like by painting such a rich portrait of this thing, it feels loved. It feels yeah. love like how some people feel like when they're being roasted, it feels like they're being loved because You're being seen in a way like to like be in this Denny's with his daughter who so clearly loves. But like and that is there, but like to also extend that love to this Denny's and obviously like to approach it in a what do I love about this and not love as in good, but just sort of like what is the thing that makes me excited to like think about this or talk about it and to one capture that so that the audience also feels that and can see Danny's through his eyes in a way that feels love. But also to sort of capture both the big picture of it and the sort of small picture of like each element of that is, you know, it's a 10 out of 10 difficulty or whatever. I mean, like it just really is comedy happening at the highest level where every joke, which is four minute long or five minute long or a 10 could be works on like the Texas funny where the text is interesting, and it has these different meanings without him having to go, like, and this is a story about how I love my daughter <laughs> and also a story about how I love, like, and that's what makes comedy a exciting art form because you're like, oh, humans are paradoxical, and this feels so human despite being so clearly worked on.
3: Yeah, yeah. He has, in part because of his own, like, his public persona outside of his stand up particularly before his wife's death and like that one moment where he was on Parks and Rec and mm-hmm. as the like weird he has a like a fanish level of enthusiasm for things in a way that we often associate with like pop culture badness right people who love things wrong too hard mm-hmm. and know them too well and are creating these worlds about pop culture worlds in their own heads in a way that we find like alarming and suspicious. And he like clearly understands, recognizes that and feels it. Like there is one frame for a story in this special where he's like, I was going to be able to go inside the millennium Falcon, but I had my daughter's art show that I had to go to instead. And he, that is him clearly. Mm -hmm. But the thing that, the thing that these other, that these jokes really demonstrate is that kind of fanishness that kind of intensity of reading is not something that is is it's just like an ability to read things really 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 carefully in a in a remarkable analytical way yeah. and the enthusiasm for it can feel weird when it is focused on say star wars but the skill of it is actually like this remarkably honed like knife that he is able to just be so careful about about using um and i think it has to do with that that like the scariness of that intensity of love also
2: mm-hmm.
3: because you feel it so strongly and you're also always aware like this could go too far but he is so controlled about it yeah, yeah.
2: Next, in the first name alphabetical order, is Taylor Tomlinson's Quarter Life Crisis on Netflix.
3: Yes. Yes. Um, She is really just incredibly punchy, and her presence is able to create this lovely sense of um, irony, I guess is the word I'm going for. I think it's more that she weaponizes how sweet she looks and how Unsweet, a lot of her stories are. And it is exacerbated by the fact that um, she, most of her material in here is about relationships, is about her own desire to have children, is about like what she imagines marriage is or is not like. And then toward the end is about what her childhood is like. And in almost every iteration of those stories, they start out, or you could feel this alternate version of them, where she is not wearing a black leather jacket and instead she is wearing like a much you know a a much more um soothing like typically Mm -hmm. like i am a i am a woman who you do not need to be scared of clothing um and they are stories about dating there are stories about um you know who she imagines that she could be in the future and she starts out thinking you think that she's going to tell these these familiar jokes about gender roles and instead she finds this she flips it to be this really smart upsetting and often like very self-centered version of how to tell those stories that i found just extremely beguiling um it is wild to watch her say like she has this one line i wrote down i'd like to have kids which is a shame because i'm so talented and that i think that that same sentiment returns again and again throughout the special
5: i'd like to have kids too which is a shame because i'm so talented and (laughs) um you understand uh I don't know what happened. A few years ago, I was like, yeah, I'll get to kids. And now it's like every day I wake up and my brain goes, you have goals. And my body's like, I'm empty, like all the time. I saw a baby in a fedora last week. And I was like, I need to make something and put a hat on it right now. (laughs) It came from somewhere inside me I didn't know existed. I felt like a young boy who'd just seen porn for the first time. Just like, what's happening to my body? I have to go home forever.
3: That joke then becomes this, it, she, the, where she goes with that next is that she would like to have a husband who is a stay at home dad, but she doesn't want somebody who would ever choose originally mm-hmm. to be a stay at home dad. And like her own legitimate delight in the uh, the discomfort of having a husband resent her because he had to give up his health for his career. Um, it is a kind of confidence you don't. Often see from women, and you particularly don't see from women who, as like she calls it, she's very young, Um yeah. and it just feels unbelievably assured that whole yeah. that whole special. I
2: mean, the thing when when I watched it, and what I always compare it to is is girls. Like what it yeah. felt like watching girls, especially at the beginning, when they're, it's easier to ignore people being mad at it for whatever reason, which is this is a person writing about their life right now with the perspective that usually happens when people are older than it, Yeah. but not with the sort of burden of this was the past. Like it feels so right now. And it's, you just don't see that often. Often you see comedians like do their special when they turn 33 about what it was like to turn 30. Right. And because she started doing comedy at an incredibly young age, By the time she was doing her special about being 24, she has already been doing comedy for 10 years. So, like, she was able to have the sort of confidence of a person with perspective, but without having perspective, you know? Like, And (laughs) though it's interesting when people have perspective because, like, hypothetically, we can learn something, but there is something, and and as she gets to, which is, like, I know I'm wrong, but I still have to live for another few years like this. Yeah, yeah. Like, there is something about a special that is not like i know everything like there's so there it is a posture that has been put on by a certain sort of comedian more and more so because as we as a society have like esteemed comedians with such value a lot of a lot of comedians just sort of take on that value without earning it and they're like i know everything because i'm a comedian or whatever is their posture (laughs) like what have you done to earn it and it's like and so rarely do they have that posture. And, and I think a lot of comedians often will use it like, oh, maybe they feel like they might have some expertise from this, but then they feel like they have expertise on everything. And it, it causes a lot of missteps. And where Taylor's just sort of like, I don't know anything, but this is what it's, this is it. I'm reporting to you from the front lines. Yeah. And it feels truly authentic because it's like, she doesn't have the ability to not be that way and that feels rare like you know it's she's when uh, Netflix was first promoting it as something like she's the youngest person to have a Netflix hour or whatever which wasn't true because Pete Davidson I think is such a slightly younger than her Mm -hmm. the problem is Pete Davidson has lived such a remarkably specific life (laughs) (laughs) that it's like all we know is it all has to be so about Pete Davidson like there's sort of nothing you can glean him from this and also Pete has that posture of like, I know something, mm-hmm. which is always what was sort of interesting about him as a really young comedian was that he was 17 and like felt like he was wizened, partly because of mm-hmm. his gruff voice and partly because he did have certain sort of insights of like growing up quickly. Um, though Taylor also has certain insights from growing up quickly as they they both young, lost parents at a young age. But Pete, it's hard to not feel a certain amount of cynicism that just comes from the fact that his life is more cynical. Like, yeah. He lives in a cynical world. People treat him cynically. It's hard to process it. And it's like not that interesting because he's talking about fame from the perspective of a young person. And like fame's not that interesting of a subject. <laughs> I imagine if you are famous, it is a fascinating subject. But yeah, so few yeah. of us are famous. <laughs> um, where like being a person trying to reckon with just sort of like feeling young and knowing you're wrong. But what are you supposed to do with that information is it's so compelling and she's so good at it. Like ultimately she'd be compelling if she was worse at it, but it just like wouldn't raise to this level.
3: Yeah. It's very well written also. Like she doesn't know anything except she does know extremely well how to write a joke. Well, she's
2: at the most basic is like, she knows how to do the thing that makes you want to watch this for an hour, which is like be funny over and over again yeah yeah, and that's just like because she's been doing it so long and she just has it she has she knows what good joker writing looks like and feels like and paces like so you're like i will consume like i lived my early 20s i don't necessarily but it's like interesting just to like to feel it and it feels yeah. so authentic and and yeah. um I, it's so exciting like i didn't know who she was then i watched this thing and you're like oh this this new great comedian exists like.
3: <laughs> yeah 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 it's almost like it's very dense it's maybe denser than a lot of the ones on on the list and it's it's wild actually watching her she realizes a couple times she has to like stop or say the line a couple times just so that the audience will like catch up to where she is um well, yeah it's, the, it's, it's the, so it's good. the density
2: of a person who's not performing for an audience who knows who they are right yeah Taylor is like this audience probably doesn't think much of her she's young she's she's a woman these audiences she's performing for around the country those both those things aren't who they're expecting so to do that you have to be like i need to keep your attention i can't you know you don't have the trust and it's good when a comedian gets more experienced or gets bigger because then they can like expand on bits a little bit but it is fun when you're like oh there's like lots of things to laugh at at this
3: yeah 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 yeah
2: okay okay Alphabetical order, T-E, goes Ted Alexandro's stay-at-home comedian, which I believe he released on his YouTube, but was like a composite of many Instagram jokes that he sort of made into what we are calling a a special.
3: A special. Right, right, right. Yes. This is one of the ones where I was watching it. I mean, I'm trying to remember where it's just impossible to divorce it from the year. I think there are some of these that if they had come out last year or come out next year, assuming there is a next year, they would feel, you know, still as relevant or I can separate them from the moment. This you cannot. Um, And one of the really interesting things about it to me is not just that it is this reflection of suddenly we're all stuck at home and how do i do comedy now which is like biz- Im- strange uncertainty um and does not reflect the kind of resources that somebody like Chappelle has where you can be like i'm gonna like create an outdoor space and mm-hmm. i'll tell netflix and then magically an audience will come like that's that's like four i'm gonna people, have branded
2: face
4: mask.
3: <laughs> four people in the world can do that like that yeah. is not a way to replicate how to create comedy in this moment um, and so there's just a really appealing scrappiness about like how do I just create something that is like comedy in, in this moment
1: are you well
6: <sighs> breathe deep what is going on we're at the point where it's like what uh, you know what, what day is it what, where do I live? What planet? What planet is this?
2: Is this the, is it the Milky Way? Are we still in the Milky Way? I am here in Astoria, Queens. I do see people going by from time to time. I feel like the old man who wants to yell out the window, get, get it, get away from my house.
1: <laughs> get away. Go back. Not welcome here.
3: So there's that element of it. But the other thing that I think is really interesting and something that, you know, I have never really thought about as for how to make a special and yet is, from what I understand, actually very close to the way comedians do build material which is that you just you show up night after night after night after night and you say something Mm. often it is a joke that you are working on a piece of a joke that you are working on and then like a bunch of other stuff that you're just not really sure yet and then eventually it gets stitched together as a written piece that you then perform as like a whole hour. Right. Yes. And this is that it, it is a, this is like a the quilt version of that where you can still see all of the places where it is sewn together and deliberately. So like the art of the quilting is that, you know, that it is a quilt. And I was just so fascinated by the way he was able to edit together all of these different segments and the effectiveness of seeing him respond just to being in New York day after day over the course of like a month as a a record of what it is like to be alive right then that I, I feels important and and valuable to me and also uh the I mean we have talked a little bit about Um, on vulture and i think elsewhere people have begun to pick up on the like front facing camera thing and what do you do without an audience but as a form that's something we are going to be seeing more and more of and this is you know one of the more finished examples of it that is as much as i love the tiktok length as much as i love the like 45 second twitter length video it is always going to be a different thing than actually creating a long work that is built. And it is fascinating watching somebody try to figure that out on the fly in this moment.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it succeeds two things. One, which you mentioned, which is with editing, it's starting to figure out how to create rhythm without audience. And I think Mm. it's like if you've watched sort of Zoom shows, that the biggest problem is the rhythm is off and these comedians don't know how to sort of create internal rhythms. It's the comedians that are sort of doing the best are people who are naturally are rhythmic and like they like their speech patterns are, I I think about it like Naomi McPeregan every time I watch her and she's just like, you don't need the audience. Like the audience is lucky to get to lock into your rhythm. But like, ultimately it's like what YouTubers did, which is sort of edit different things. And that creates the same sort of rhythm. Like though comedy is a multifaceted art, it is also like at its most basic talking in a way with the audience that you're like creating a rhythm of how you're speaking where Mm -hmm. it's like you say words they laugh and that's how it works you know so it 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 did a good job of least like defining a vocabulary that could work of front-facing but like you're going to edit it to sort of have the other rhythm the other thing which I think is sort of underrated with what stand-up comedy can do and it's partly underrated because we are also in the moment which is like it is good to know what people were thinking at a time, right or yeah. wrong, right? Yeah. I think it's a part that is really valuable about stand-up that I think if anything has been pushed back upon, which is because, we, because we've because we now given comedians so much power or status, if they say something like out of step, we are more upset about it because we're like, you have a platform and you should be saying something that is moving society forward. The, the counterpoint, which these comedians don't voice because they don't necessarily think of it this way, which is like... <laughs> I'm reflecting what society feels. And right or wrong, this is it. And it's useful to know what society feels in the service of like trying to move it forward, being like, yeah, yeah, we yeah. You can't just pretend society has moved forward. I mean, it's like the problem with a lot of the like removing of TV show episodes. We're just like pretending we all these TV shows already didn't have these problems or is wild. It's like then it completely creates a disjointed narrative. So, like, what the succeeds in. Is more entertainingly capturing what these weeks felt like, right? Yep. There's gonna be some author, like, I don't know, Jonathan Franzen or whatever, is gonna write some book about this time in like five <laughs> years or like Dave Eggers. And I just like imagine, and like some people will like laud it as like capturing some whatever, but it won't really. It'll sort of will capture how it felt yeah. or the sort of prism or it'll be perceived. And it'll be like more finished, where this is like, this is what it's like. You'll yeah, be able yeah. to watch it. It's going to exist for forever. It's a time capsule, and like that is a use for comedy as a medium where people tell the truth, hypothetically, and like it succeeds at that, which is like it's almost uncomfortable to watch at the time yes. because yes. you're like, yeah, man, I also hate this. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> no. Going back to watching <laughs> it, I'm like, oh, there was differences of how I felt then and as I do now, and it's like so useful to have that. Yeah, you know, comedians are professional, good talkers. Yeah. Because like lots of people could have done that, but it's not going to be as watchable as when Ted Alexandra does it.
3: Yeah, I completely concur with that. Like it was almost uncomfortable to watch because it just felt because I we are all still too close to it, right? And so the the fact that it exists at all, I think, is is pretty remarkable.
2: Okay, last one, almost the last letter in the alphabet. First name <laughs> was Avon uh, Orgy's "Mom, I Made It," which is available on HBO and the HBO i was gonna say cinematic universe the hbo family (laughs) of streaming services
3: yeah yes which i believe actually the family is dying out the one streaming service is attempting to eat all of the other ones hbo max
2: is is a blob or whatever of the other one exactly or or a rat king of sorts but there's still this is (laughs) i have roku and i think i still have to use hbo go or whatever
3: sure yeah 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 um yes i uh was just I le- I spent so much time watching this special and just being like, she is so good at at just being on this. I mean, she just is an unbelievable presence on the stage. Yeah. First of all, I spent a lot of time, which I kind of feel bad about, but not really, <laughs> in my review, complaining a little bit about the documentary footage yeah. because I do not think that it is necessary here.
2: To explain, she tells jokes about um, Nigeria and her childhood growing up in Maryland, but she sort of spent a few years in Nigeria, and sometimes she goes back and forth. So she was talking about sort of the difference between Nigerians and being a Nigerian-American, but in that she also went back to Nigeria yes. and talked to her parents and talked to sort of friends, and that was interspersed.
4: Yes,
3: and there have been now many specials yes. that have included documentary elements. They are always distracting, which I don't necessarily mean in a bad way. Like they are always pulling you out of that stage performance. And it is possible for that to be incredibly powerful as you are watching. But in at least from what I have seen so far of this trend, it is sometimes the case where they are distracting in a way that Either feels just unnecessary or almost undermines
4: mm-hmm.
3: how fantastic the thing is that is happening on stage. And look, she's so fantastic that it doesn't matter. Like, you, you yeah, could have another the, hour. The documentary, documentary stuff footage. is
2: charming. Like, I'd watch exactly. an hour of each. Yeah, yeah.
3: It's super charming. But she is so great at making you feel this place where she is. While she is on the stage, that then showing you the place almost feels, and not like a letdown, but just why am I mean, I I don't need it. You showed it to me through your mind already. The example that bothered me the most was where she talks about how Nigerians are terrible at giving directions and then has like footage of people being bad at giving directions, which, yes, is very funny, except she was funnier. Yeah, I would be perfectly happy to just have the funnier part of it. And so that element of it, I just feel like, was proving something that didn't need to be proven.
2: Yeah, I mean, I go back and forth because it is enjoyable to watch. And I imagine it it is for people who don't believe stand-up comedians. Yeah. (laughs) Like, whatever that means. They see a stand-up comedian and their instinct is not to watch them with the hope of feeling like they're meeting them. There's like, you're yeah. in- there to entertain me. You're telling me your life story, whatever. But I'm not like thinking this is the truth. And it being the truth does make art more interesting or whatever. And like, I think we, because we watch a lot of standup or just the nature of how we um, empower the work of artists are inclined to believe that just the fact that they're expressing themselves means it is the truth. Regardless of if they're saying like, I grew up in... PG County, in Maryland, or if they're saying the example I always use is Christian Shawl dreamt of a birdcage one night and then bought a birdcage and then created a bit around it. That is her. It is yeah. the, her truth. But that is yeah. a maybe a, a critic's understanding or sort of like more elevated understanding of like comedy as art. So I imagine it, it's a bit of like not thinking so much of the audience and yeah. being like, this is how it can prove to them it's true. But to me and it's and to you, often. It removes some of the sort of, like, complexity that is a person talking.
3: Yeah, and the thing that we are, the thing that we, that she's so great at, right, which is um, both writing and she, because of her, because of who she is, she has fluency in all of these different kinds of voices. And not just fluency, but the ability to then... um, Be replicate, and sort of create those different voices on stage. And that is as transporting and often more transporting than, like, documentary footage of Nigeria. And so it, it is giving me almost a more impoverished version of the thing that she already gave. And the example, I mean, I think there are... There are so many great jokes in this special, but the one where I could feel her like talking through and also literally talking through in different voices that uh, cultural fluency, many different cultural Mm -hmm. fluencies that she has is this joke that she does about the game Taboo, where somebody stands in front with like a word and then they have to get somebody else to say the word by describing it. And so she is describing both herself, this extremely well-educated Nigerian-American woman playing this with her friends from New York City who are are using a particular kind of African-American vernacular English to play Taboo, and her being like, why would you ever use that clue? That makes absolutely no sense. He was like,
5: ah, money, money, money. money. (laughs) Nigga, we got this. I'm looking at the clock like, no, we don't, hurry up. Like, it's like, okay, okay, okay. Ah. Okay, 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 listen, 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 listen. When a hoe knows that you got a girl, right, right, okay, and she don't even care my nigga, she still be trying to holler? What is she?
0: That's that's where we're going with this?
5: When a hoe knows you got to... So not parched. <laughs> not there is a drought and thus. <laughs> and me and my masses in public health, I'm like, I'm inconsiderate,
3: selfish. Um. The context for that joke is that she is then also creating an extremely specific depiction of a Nigerian-American and and just Nigerian Mm -hmm. language. And so you have this unbelievable multivocality coming from one person. And that is where this special is most alive. And then when you see it in the documentary, it just feels so much more flat. And so I love that taboo joke and her ability to do all of those voices and be all of those different people. And I... I love the moments when the special just lets that stand by itself.
2: I go back and forth because I, I agree on the, the most basic thing, which is sort of her playing characters in this world, be it her family members, in a way that, you know, is like Maria Bamford-esque or like people she knows. She's so good at a very hard thing. Yes. And when people do it, it's like the most magical thing that you could see. And very few people do it because it's too hard. And she's so good at it. But I I think the case for documentary footage, thinking of a few examples, this one and and Jenny Slate in particular, which is, it's trying to make it less about them. Mm. That she doesn't feel comfortable speaking as the only voice about her life. And that does push against ideals of artists as the person who's telling the story. But like, I think with both of them and and having spoken to both of them, I think both of them are really motivated by... In the case of Ivana, being like, I don't want to be the only Nigerian American. My perspective is not the perspective. And I want to capture that one by showing you that there's perspectives that are similar than mine, but not exactly the same, and just showing all of it. I'm not comfortable, either be it personally or artistically, with the idea of me as spokesperson for this experience. It's interesting that it's happening. Yeah. I don't know if I am saying it's good or if it's more successful, right? Like, I think what we're both pushing back on is like, We don't think it's succeeding at the level the other stuff is. But it is interesting that it's like keep on happening and people are finding themselves less and less comfortable with the idea of like comedian as the one point of view.
3: Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's almost immediately self-defeating, right? Because at the end of the day, the form is that you are the person standing on the stage. And what the documentary footage is, is doing, right, is trying to actively dismantle the form that it is that it is a part of. And I completely understand, like, when you describe it that way, immediately I'm like, oh, of course, like, they're both women and they are, you know, and so they're, that's a part of it. And the fact that then when I go back and I think about, like, the other documentary footage that we saw in the last year from men, they often lack the discomfort with being the only
4: mm-hmm. yeah. point
3: of View, So I think that's just, it's really worthwhile. And I appreciate thinking through all the different ways that the documentary footage is trying to frustrate the form itself. And yet, in both of those examples, in Jenny Slate and in Yvonne... They are already doing that in the form. Like yeah, the yeah. form, their their jokes are already full of their families and all of these other characters. Jenny's comedy is all about like she's in this house and her, where she comes from and her grandmother. Yvonne is literally creating through these voices all of these other people. And I think it would be... Like you can't watch that and be like, "Oh, she's the only person." You know, I mean, it is so clearly a product of everything else. Um, But I complete, but I do, I I do definitely understand, and unfortunately, sympathize with this fear that the audience mm-hmm. won't immediately understand that.
2: I think as as we're wrapping up, and who knows how many more specials there'll be, and in what what form they'll take. Um What do you hope for for the rest of the year, broadly or specifically?
3: I'm very curious what some outdoor specials will look like. I think it feels like a really challenging space. And I believe that it is possible. um, And I mean, I think Chappelle shows that it is possible to have a stage and have something work. But the fact that that also did not involve a lot of people laughing at jokes feels like yeah. a telling issue. So that, um, I am also, and uh, you know, increasingly as stuff comes out that was filmed before, the friction mm. between what it was like then and now can feel like an escape, a really welcome escape, but also it just rubs sometimes the wrong way. And so I am a little nervous about that. But I would really love to see somebody take some of the stuff that, like, say, Ted Alexander was doing and work and work and work. And, but what a less immediate version mm-hmm. of that form looks like, because that feels, you know, it's really hard to do it without the immediate response of an audience, but I know there are comedians who are working around that. I I did a piece about Jenny Yang's Animal Crossing Mm -hmm. comedy shows, which are so fun, but part of what makes them work is that she just completely embraces the disembodiment of it in a way that I think is so like through the looking glass that your brain is able to almost just adjust to like, yeah. we're cute cartoon bodies now. That's what we're all going to accept. So it's sad. It's really sad that that we are in this place, but I am trying to uh, hope and be excited about some really interesting stuff in the future while people, you know, have to make it this way.
2: Well, Catherine Van Arendonk, I promised it'd be shorter this time and I do not think we succeeded. <laughs> Nope. I think next time we should talk for a full two hours before we start. And then we'll be like, okay, we'll just blitz through it. But it was so (laughs) nice to see you and to hear your voice and to talk to you. (laughs) I'll talk to you later. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. The end. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can read Catherine's list of the best specials of the year so far on Vulture. Follow Catherine on Twitter at KVanAaron. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Art Chung, and Camila Salazar. Gautam Srikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture in the Box Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with Dulce Sloan. Have a good one.
0: Why do you run?